The Passion Week has come upon us. Good Friday is here. Resurrection Sunday is a few glorious days hence. And unlike our normal practice where we would gather together solemnly to remember our Lord's death on the cross for our sins, and then our wonderful celebration on Resurrection Sunday with a cantata singing and a brunch and a meal to follow as we rejoice that death could not conquer our Lord. We're gathered in our homes. We are taking refuge from a plague, from disease. And as I thought how best to approach Passion Week, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, in this context of social distancing, of isolation, separation, I couldn't help but think how closely our situation mirrors the first Passover, that event which pictures, predicts, and prepares God's people for the death of Christ. Because, of course, Israel wasn't gathered corporately to celebrate the Passover, were they? Each family was in their home. And they did not dare go outside. They huddled together with no small amount of fear. And they read God's word. And they trusted in his promises. And he was faithful. So for our study, I'd ask you to open your Bible to the book of Exodus. Open it to chapter 7. We're going to learn four lessons from the first Passover. Four lessons from the first Passover. But we'll begin in chapter 7. I know these are familiar events, but I think sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest. So Exodus chapter 7. Four straightforward points that are in the text that I think will be helpful for us to remember as we celebrate the Lord's death burial, and glorious resurrection, separated and not together. So the first lesson from the first Passover is this. The plagues were from the Lord. The plagues were from the Lord. The events leading up to the Exodus, the events leading up to the death of the firstborn, were a systemic and unrelenting catastrophe for Egypt, one after another. As their crops were destroyed, their livestock was destroyed, their water source was destroyed, they were covered in boils and flies and darkness. Egypt's economy was crushed under the plagues, plagues of disease with the boils, plagues of pestilence, at every level of Egyptian society, the Lord God rained down judgment. And the text, as we read through it, is unmistakable. This is the hand of God. God orchestrated the plagues in such a way as to remove any doubt that these were natural occurrences, that these were natural events. In fact, read with me a few of these accounts. The first plague is seen in chapter 7, where the water 
is turned to blood, the water of the Nile and all other water sources. And we read that in verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish of the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Now Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Moses predicts what's going to happen, and he does this miraculous event. Now, in the first instance, Pharaoh's magicians can take a small amount of water and turn it into blood. That doesn't seem to be very helpful, what literal water you have left. But in effect, they're saying, well, you know, we could do this too, and this isn't that impressive. So Pharaoh's heart is hard. He doesn't let the people go. Then comes the second plague, the frogs. And frogs envelop the land. Now, this is probably more of an inconvenient or a contaminant as frogs get into food preparations, as frogs get into your clothing. Um, But his heart was hard. He would not listen to them. Verse 15 of chapter 8. And the third plague comes, the gnats. And here's the point where Pharaoh's magicians can no longer even attempt to appear to keep up. And as the gnats come and fester and bother and irritate man and beast in Egypt, verse 19 of chapter 8, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even Pharaoh's magicians recognize there is no other possible explanation for this plague And the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites, has done this. This is a work of God. And then the flies come. And and the Lord God begins to, dare I say it, show off even more, bring more glory to himself. Because we read in verse 22 of chapter 8, On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. So we don't know previously whether or not the Israelites were directly affected by the plagues. All of the attention of the text is on the flies were on the Egyptians, man and beast. We're not told whether flies were on the Israelites. Here specifically, this plague comes and we're told specifically that there will be swarms and swarms and swarms of flies on everything. I'll send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I'll set apart the land of Goshen. Miraculously, indicating God's sovereign control, there are no swarms of flies where the Israelites are. Again, making it clear, this is not some natural occurrence. And then the the livestock dying, the fifth plague. And again, the Israelites are singled out for protection. Not only does this plague come upon their livestock, it's predicted by Moses, but it only happens to the Egyptians. Verse 6, the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. 
This is Exodus 9, I'm sorry, 9 verse 6. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. We see the sixth plague, the boils. We don't know whether boils come upon just the Egyptians. I suspect so. The attention again in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 9 is, For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But nothing said about Israel. And then we have the seventh plague, hail. And here, the Lord God is drawing attention to himself and his sovereign control over these plagues. And he's actually even giving the Egyptians themselves a chance to respond in faith. Because he warns them. He warns them to bring their livestock and their manservants in from the field so that the hail will not kill them. And we read in chapter 9, verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. But even as this hail, devastating hail, falls upon land of Egypt, we read in verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So systemic nationwide hail falls over all of Egypt except the land of Goshen. And then the locusts come, the eighth plague, and Pharaoh's heart remains hard. He initially yields briefly, but then he relents. And then, probably most stunning, up until the final plague, the ninth plague, the darkness, the, the description. This isn't just an eclipse darkness. This isn't just twilight. This is absolute pitch. Just listen to the language of the text. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Such utter darkness, people aren't getting up and moving around. Don't misunderstand this. This is supernatural, cataclysmic darkness. But verse 23 goes on. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, what I'm trying to highlight here is this text, at every turn, highlights God's control. God's control over both the plagues and God's control even over hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we've got a plague taking place around us, and I assure you, God is just as much in control the coronavirus. God is just as much in control over the heavens and the earth and the affairs of nations today as he ever has been. We, we, we need to come to grips with this. We need to look this square in the face. The plagues leading up to the Passover, were from the hand of the Lord. Now, we tend to be more comfortable with the Exodus account because it's plagues on our enemies. It's not on us. God protects his people. He pours out his plagues on 
the infidel, the unbeliever, the Egyptians. We'll get to that in our next point. But as we wrestle with our fear and our uncertainty, the distress, the suffering, the loss of life taking place around us today and every day, it's just more highlighted recently, we tend to get far more uncomfortable when people die in big groups all together. But they're, they're dying and heading into eternity every day. The Lord God reigns and rules and is in control. The plagues in Egypt were from the Lord. His, his hand and his mark is all over them, stamped all over them. He goes out of his way to make it clear, I did this and no other. And God is in control. He rules, he reigns, he does as he pleases, including sending plagues for his good and wise purposes. We see his good and wise purposes in Exodus. I don't know what his current good and wise purposes are, but I know they are good and they are wise. So that leads us now to our second point. If you'll move with me to Exodus chapter 12, we'll look specifically at the institution of the Passover. In chapter 11, the, the warning is given to Pharaoh, and then God gives instructions to Moses and the Israelites. Now, don't miss this. We've been highlighted in the previous text how God, for many of them, separated out Israel explicitly. I suspect for most, if not all of them, but specifically the darkness, the hail, the death of the livestock, all of those specifically were told the Israelites were protected from. So when we get to the final, the ultimate, the culmination, plague, the death of the firstborn, has it ever struck you as surprising that Israel isn't also likewise just protected? exempted. That's what happened with the hail. The, the Egyptians were warned they could fear the word of God, they could act appropriately and be spared, but there just was no hail for Israel. And something similar, I could imagine, could have been done here with the death of the firstborn, that the Egyptians could be warned, and those who feared the word of the Lord, those who trusted and believed what Moses, his prophet, said, they would apply the blood, and Israel could just sit and watch. But no, Israel is told that they, just as the Egyptians, just as anyone who would be spared this judgment, they too needed to apply the blood. Let's read Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. 
They shall not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs, its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's the second lesson to learn from the first Passover. The judgment of death was for all their sin. The judgment of death was for all their sin. Yes, in the previous plagues, the Lord has highlighted Pharaoh's stubbornness, his unrepentance. He has judged his people, the Egyptians, and he has largely, if not totally, spared Israel. But here, in the final plague, in the ultimate plague, and in the plague that models and predicts and prepares us for the Lamb of God, sacrificed on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Israel needs atoning. Israel needs protection. Don't miss that. Chapter 12, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, in this final plague, the Lord makes it clear that while he is acting on Israel's behalf, while he is angry at Pharaoh and his proud heart, Israel is not sinless. And in this Passover and in this judgment, they are just as guilty and just as deserving of death as those pagan Egyptians who worship false God's just mentioned there in verse 12. The Israelites and the Egyptians stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, neither having an advantage in this plague. There is one means of escape. There is one set of instructions, one way of avoiding God's wrath and judgment through his prescribed remedy. And in that regard, Israel had no advantage over Egypt. For they were all guilty. They all deserved death. God's judgment is just and righteous. And while he is delivering his children and he is redeeming his people, he makes it clear to them here that they are as guilty and deserving of death as the Egyptians who have enslaved them. He makes this clear as he institutes the Passover. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And it goes on for the instructions. Out of all the plagues, this is the one they're to remember. This is the one they are to year after year 
remind themselves. And this meal the Lord God institutes for his people, Israel, here, is the meal that the Lord Jesus Christ takes and appropriates and alters and turns into what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. The bread and the cup from this meal become the bread and the cup that signify his broken body, his death on the cross. And so this one plague above all the others highlights all of our need, all of our guilt, all of our deserving of judgment. It's to guard us from feeling that because we're better than these other people, we don't do the things that the Egyptians do, that somehow the angel of death will see my goodness, my faithfulness, my morality, and he'll pass over me. Nope. Because the third lesson we learn from the first Passover is that atonement comes through the blood of another. Atonement comes through the blood of another. The basis on which death would pass over each house was not found in some quality or characteristic on those within the house, but the blood of another applied to the door of the house. Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. What is it the Lord's looking for? It's not righteous people in the homes. Good, upstanding people in the homes. He's looking for one thing. The blood of the lamb applied to the house. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The judgment of death is due both to Egypt and to Israel. And the means of escape, the means of atonement and satisfaction is found not in any inherent righteousness, moral superiority. It is found in the blood and the death of another applied to the households, the families, the people in the land. The instructions are simple. You kill the lamb, you apply the blood, and then you get and stay inside. And you will be protected. You will be protected. The imagery of Christ is so clear here, but surprisingly, that connection is only made one time, clearly and explicitly in the New Testament. Now, of course, one time is all we need. And I, and I suspect all of the language, especially in the book of Revelation, of the lamb who was slain, is linking with the Passover. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we get the connection made absolutely, unmistakably for us. And I'll read that to you now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
he says this in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The lamb was killed. The blood was applied. We take cover and hide under his blood. His blood washes away our sins. As Ephesians says, redemption through his blood. And God's wrath passes over all who have applied the blood of the Lamb that was slain on our behalf. All this being set up, this pattern in Exodus, given to Israel as a statute forever, so that over a thousand years later, the Lord Jesus would have this meal, this sign ready and at hand to reshape and give it new and greater meaning. This cup is my blood of the covenant purchased for you. Which brings us now finally to our fourth point. Deliverance and salvation came through the blood of the Lamb. This final judgment in Egypt, this final and extreme judgment, the death of the firstborn, is what catapults Israel out of Egypt. The blood is applied, the lamb dies, the people who applied the blood have been spared. And we read in Exodus 12, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And so connected to this great, terrible act of judgment and salvation and deliverance is the freedom of God's people from slavery and tyranny. This event allows them to leave and enter into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And this event then becomes memorialized in their religious life perpetually. God is always up to many things. And in the first Passover, in Exodus, he, he displays his sovereignty and his control. And we would do well to be reminded that God is not just the God who is in control of plagues and disaster for other people. But the angel passed over and went through the land of Egypt and Goshen, only passing over when the Lord God saw the blood of the Lamb. Because the judgment of death was for all of their sin. God's judgment of death hangs over each and every one of us outside of Christ. Doesn't matter what family you were born into. Doesn't matter your good deeds, your morality. God's judgment of death, both temporal and eternal, hangs over every one of us who is not applied the blood of the Lamb, who is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Because God has provided the Lamb for us, whose blood was shed for us. The Lord God applies that blood to each and every one of us who turns to him in repentance and faith, who turns from whatever other things we were trusting in, whatever other gods we served or worshipped, even the God of self, 
we turn to him in faith and we say, have mercy on me. Yes, Lord God, I am guilty, but Jesus died on my behalf and his death and his blood, his life is a satisfaction and in him I can be forgiven. And all of God's other blessings, adoption as sons, spiritual gifts that we've been reading about in Ephesians, they all, they all come through that sacrifice. Just as the Passover event that spared the Israelite families also catapults Israel out of their slavery, out of captivity, into freedom, into deliverance, into a covenant with God at Sinai. All the good things and all the blessings we have are found in the blood of the Lamb applied on our behalf to us. I gotta make one final comment before we close. The lambs that were sacrificed on that day in Egypt in the land of Goshen, they they stayed dead. They were left behind. Whatever wasn't eaten was burned. And so when Israel left Egypt, those lambs had served their purpose. But the lamb that God has sent, his son, he died for his people. He died on behalf of us. And yet he lives. Because Good Friday, in which we mourn and we remember the death of him, sets up and anticipates the glorious the glorious reality that death could not hold him. And so I would leave you with this praise song found in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. It's the basis of the song that we sing, Is He Worthy? That links these two glorious truths together. The Lamb of God was slain on our behalf. He died, and yet he lives, and he reigns. And due to his death and resurrection. He has the right to take the scroll. He owns all and he will be glorified. Let me just read to you Revelation chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the angels said to me, elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I pray that you have a blessed Passion Week. You have a blessed Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And even as we are separated, take comfort that our celebration of Good Friday is similar to the first Passover. Not gathered corporately, but huddled in our homes with death outside. And God was faithful and good then, and he is faithful and good now. And he has sent his lamb who has died, and he is worthy, and he is faithful. And he deserves all praise and honor and glory. Amen.